Everyone knows serotonin deficiency causes depression, that too much cholesterol excess causes heart disease, that too much acid causes heartburn. And now we're being told too much amyloid causes Alzheimer's. These statements are the key rationale for selling antidepressants, cholesterol-lowering drugs like statins, antacids, and soon anti-amyloid antibody injections. But are they true? Or are they myth stories designed to sell drugs cloaked in dubious circumstantial evidence backed up by medical guidelines, but not by the actual science of what actually causes these diseases? I'm joined by award-winning medical journalist Jerome Byrne to sort out the fact from fiction. Now, Jerome, for people who don't know you, um, tell me a little bit about your background as an award-winning medical journalist. Okay, I started probably 20 years ago um, when I, as a freelancer, I realized I had to specialize and I got involved in some psychology stories and medical stories seemed to go better and so I focused on them. Um, I worked for a small paper which was called Medicine Today, which won an award. And um, one of my first experiences was with a researcher called David Healy, who was campaigning against um, antidepressants, uh, their use on the grounds that they were dangerous. And I sat in a studio with him and there were boxes all around the wall and they had details of the trials that had been run on the antidepressants, which no one else had seen. He had them because he was an expert in a legal case for damage by uh, the drugs. Um, so that was my first experience of how data could be hidden and um, results twisted, um, which then turned out to be something that was happening with an awful lot of drugs. So that, that was uh, 20 years of being doubtful about the evidence which supposedly supported hugely profitable drugs. Well, that's a good, actually a really good place to start. I know you went on and won uh, medical journalism awards um, because of your work, but what you're saying now is 20 years of evidence uh, showing harm of antidepressants. So one of the myth stories I want to explore is uh, the story that depression is caused by low levels of the neurotransmitter serotonin in the brain. So you need an antidepressant, um, an SSRI, a serotonin reuptake inhibitor that corrects this deficiency, and then all will be well. Is it true? Do they work? With about 100 million prescriptions a year, we, we certainly should know by now. So what is your take on antidepressants and the serotonin story to prescribe them? Well, it's certainly true that the issue of actually is serotonin uh, what's doing it has been around really um, since oh, the beginning of, of this century. Um, because shortly after I had my meeting with Healy, uh, Panorama did a programme, I think it was in 2003, which showed that the data for uh, giving the drugs to children or to adolescents, which was something that was a, 
a lot of interest in the companies at the time. The uh, One of the companies involved, I think it was Eli Lilly, um, were trying to get a license to give it to children. What emerged in the Panorama program was that they actually had data which they had concealed, which showed that it raised the risk of suicide in the adolescents who were getting it, um, which seemed, I mean, shocking. <laughs> um, the company was subsequently fined heavily for it, um, and there were changes to the guidelines for their use. But um, the issue of what the drugs actually do uh, we do know that they increased serotonin, but how beneficial that was, was very much up in the air. Um, there is a paper which came out, uh, I think it was last year. It was, uh, no, in 20, yeah, last year, um, by a, a very senior researcher called Joanna Moncrief, who works at uh, a major London centre. And she did a review of serotonin and uh, looking at all the trials over a long period. And her conclusion of this very detailed review was the main areas of serotonin research provide no consistent evidence that there is an association between serotonin and depression and no support for the hypothesis that depression is caused by lowered serotonin activity or concentrations. So um, it, it's easy to say, well, actually that's been said a lot of times or will it make any difference? But it's a pretty damning conclusion from a senior researcher. Um, and the amount of evidence in there, the papers and the rest of it is massively impressive. So the basic story that you're low in serotonin, therefore you have to take a drug that raises it is a myth. It would appear to be, or at least, if if not a myth, very serious doubts about it. I mean, there are studies showing that people who have higher serotonin uh, may be more likely to be depressed than people in whom it's lower. Um, and there are ones where people have had their serotonin deliberately lowered, which has also uh, been beneficial for their depression. Um, I mean, what I think one of the, the key things is that there's this constant drive by drug companies, uh, understandably, to find the thing that causes depression in the same way that they look for the thing that causes heart disease. Heart disease has its finger pointed at it by cholesterol. Depression is serotonin. But in the real world, um, people become depressed for all sorts of things. And there are tests which are used to decide, doctor will run, to decide whether you are depressed. And one of the things, it's questions. One of the questions is, do you sometimes feel depressed? Um, and there's no measuring ever done of your serotonin to say, oh, yes, you've got low, and, and then that see how that changes and how that affects it. So um, the, the idea that you can find one thing for it um, is, is bound to, to fail, really, because all sorts of things cause people to be depressed quite reasonably. 
if they've got divorced, if they've lost their job, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But those things are never considered when your doctor's consultation. It, it's really, um, you, you seem depressed and we'll give you um, uh, an antidepressant. It's what's also quite interesting if we sort of stay on the serotonin topic. And I, I think there's quite a nice analogy of this in dementia and Alzheimer's, which we'll come on to, is that if you in dementia, there's um, a well-established um, lack of brain fuel. It's like an energy gap. And what actually happens is there's a lack of glucose in the brain. So, um, you know, that's the case. But yeah. The risk is much higher in diabetics and people with blood sugar problems. So if you measure their blood, you'd find high glucose. But if you measured their brain, you'd find a lack of glucose. And that yeah. lack of glucose in this case is driven by insulin resistance. So, so in fact, the irony is too much eating of sugar leads to the inability to make use of the glucose. And I'm not willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater on serotonin completely for a few reasons. One is a lot of the things that do make a difference. I mean, the evidence for omega-3 is just absolutely overwhelming in relation to depression. It actually improves the reception of serotonin. It's a bit like improving insulin resistance. And B vitamins you know, do similar things. And actually even sugar and stimulants, which promote adrenaline and dopamine, they also mess up how serotonin works. So just measuring serotonin ignores, you know, all these other factors that could play a part. But what I also noticed in um, uh, Joanna Moncrief's very excellent review, uh, which I find quite intriguing because we've had all these important programs now showing that these antidepressants cause appalling withdrawal effects if you've been on them for many years, um, is the evidence that long-term use of serotonin reuptake inhibitor antidepressants may actually lead to serotonin depletion. And that may be one of the reasons why people are going through these withdrawal effects. Yes. Um, I mean, it, it's one of the strange things about psychiatry is that it never actually looks at the brain or it's not a routine part of it. Um, and it's all around... Uh, interpretations of emotional states and um, uh, ways that people describe their feelings and thoughts. But there's a there are some people who are now saying we need to look at the brain because the brain is what generates a lot of this. And the uh, serotonin thing is, is an attempt to do that and say serotonin is the marker. Um, but as, as we've seen from the, the studies, there seems to be a lot of doubt around that. But what it does do, of course, is terribly good for selling a drug which lowers it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, a very, it's a very simple measure. And um, looking at uh, Professor Moncrief's paper, often the measure that's used to sort of get an idea of serotonin in the brain. By the way, the point is that the cerebrospinal fluid in the brain is where you'd want to be measuring serotonin, but that requires a lumbar puncture. So, you know, that's not really um, sort of ethically. Yeah, it's not very ethically viable. But what happens is serotonin gets broken down into something called 5-HIAA. 
And a lot of the attempts to measure serotonin actually measures the breakdown product, 5-HIAA. But then what I was reading recently, which I found very interesting, is that you know 70% of serotonin is actually made in the gut and doesn't and, 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 and you know the rest in the brain and they're separate. So a yeah. lot of people think that the gut serotonin then finds its way to the brain. There might be a little bit of, of sort of communication through the vagus nerve, but basically it's separate. And a study came out which showed that vitamin D, uh, actually selectively reduces serotonin production in the gut, increases serotonin production in the brain. So the point is, if you're just measuring the, you know, the waste product of serotonin, 5-HIAA, you have no idea um, if it's serotonin from the gut, which is, right. you know, 70%, or whether it's from the brain. So I think one of the big problems we have here is we don't actually have a good measure of serotonin. Uh, and there is a there is a man, Dr. Tapanaudia, and he showed that that cerebrospinal fluid serotonin does not correlate with blood markers or with uh, urine markers or 5-HIAA. It does actually uh, um, correlate with the level of serotonin in platelets, which are these tiny little things in the blood. But unfortunately, that's not you know, readily available as such. So we may have a measure of serotonin, but it's not being used. But your point is the diagnosis is psychological. The story is you've got a chemical imbalance and consequently the drug is sold. And the evidence for the drugs working, not very good at all. The evidence of significant problems, if you've been on them for years, is quite uh, large. Yes, and one of the shocking things <clears throat> is that after the uh, Panorama program, um, there was a, a change in the descriptions of what the side effects of uh, the antidepressant drugs could be, um, because at the, it had originally been, oh, not very much to worry about, um, very safe, etc. And the patients' reports of what was happening to them was just being ignored. <clears throat> there were quite a lot of websites on, online where patients reported what was happening with them, and these were dismissed just as anecdotes. Um, after the Panorama programme, they did actually redo it, and they included a lot of those side effects that were being talked about from the antidepressants. There were strange electrical feelings and um, sometimes more depression. And um, there was a, a list of uh, the, the problems with it. And what was interesting was that uh, over the years, that list got gradually less and less detailed. And uh, a researcher at uh, East London University who's been following uh, this area as well, uh, very recently within the last year, found that the NICE guidelines um, for, uh, or I'm sorry, not the guidelines, but the account of what the damage was or what the side effects were, um, had been paired back to what it had been 20 years earlier. And he said, he then contacted NICE and said, look, you're misrepresenting it, and had a number of other researchers supporting him. 
and the the list of side effects was put back in again. So there's this curious, the, even the authorities, the um, the bodies that are supposed to be uh, assessing the benefit of drugs were actually, well, it, it, it seems like colluding with the story being told by the drug companies, which was that they were safe, well tolerated and beneficial. And actually even NICE uh, in, in, in their report says that the benefit from antidepressants is marginal for anyone with mild or, or moderate depression. Now, let's turn our attention to um, antacids, and particularly the top-selling kind, which are called PPIs, or proton pump inhibitors. They usually end in azole. Uh, you might have heard of imeprazole. Worldwide, world, worldwide sales are in excess of $15 billion and growing. They're used to treat acid reflux, indigestion, bloating, stomach infections, such as Helicobacter pylori. And actually, they're, they're handed out for a lot of other conditions as well. What's your take on these PPI anti-acids? Anti well, they are. They're massively used in a rather... The, the, the feeling is, and this is quite interesting about the way that the drug culture views um, bodily functions, is that they... The, underlying assumption certainly for a long time was that you could get rid of stomach acid without there being any problems so these these drugs they they turned off a um uh, one of the uh, processes for releasing uh, acid into the stomach um which of course is necessary for digesting your food um among other things and the idea that the body would dis, um, use a lot of energy to produce something that really didn't matter is, is um, well, it's, it's fairly typical, but it's not helpful um, because the it then gradually emerged that the people who had had their stomach acid dramatically reduced, uh, particularly for long periods, um they there were two key problems with it one was that they were unable to extract b vitamins particularly b12 from their diet and b vitamins are crucial for good functioning of the brain and they're involved certainly in uh, alzheimer's and other brain problems so that was one thing and they also uh, blocked the uptake of uh, magnesium, which is something that's needed for a whole range of other uh, functions in the body. Um, so you were getting people with all sorts of odd side effects, as a, which very often weren't recognised because there wasn't a sense. There was a sense that these drugs themselves didn't have any harm, um, but their knock-on effects on lowering the stomach acid was very considerable. Uh, and even now, they're still doled out to people in um, in care homes very who get given quite a number of so-called um, protective drugs. Um, and again, these symptoms of, of the damage being done is very often not picked up. And this leads into a, a wider thing, which is that... Um, well, when you take a drug, you're often warned 
not to take any vitamins or anything else because it might interfere with the drug. What you're rarely told is that drugs can interfere with a lot of other functions um, in the body and, and in the way that um, uh, minerals and vitamins are taken up. They can stop the absorption of vitamin C and vitamin E and zinc and so on. Um, so that, that's a, a, a much wider issue, which has been uh, the subject of quite a bit of research. The idea is, is that uh, drugs are actually vitamin muggers. Um, so uh, it's again a story of, <clears throat> well, damp down the, uh, the, the uh, acid in your stomach and you'll feel a bit better, and that's job done. But all it's doing is treating assumption and building up lots of problems down the line. And of course, the assumption there is that people who've got, um, you know, digestive problems have excess acid. Is there any evidence to support that? Uh, I, I mean, it's certainly the case that if you have um, heartburn <clears throat> um, and you take something to damp down your acid, I mean, the stand, there's a range of products which do it quite successfully you do feel better so i think it and if people have very severe heartburn ppis certainly make them feel better but the problem is that they're kept on them for far too long and nothing is done to look at what else might be calling this causing this heartburn and there are a lot of other things uh, particularly what's going on in the guts um, yeah, I mean, from a from a sort of nutritional therapist point of view, um, where there is some evidence is uh, is a decreasing production of stomach acid with age. <clears throat> not terribly surprising. It's it actually has stomach acid is made. It's it's called uh, betaine hydrochloride, and it's it requires methylation, which brings us back to the B vitamins, including B twelve, which is what the drug stops you. Um, absorbing so well but our understanding is that when your stomach acid level drops stomach stomach acid does four things it digests food it sanitizes your food so it kind of gets rid of harmful bacteria and so on when the when the acid level rises it shuts the valve at the top and bottom of the stomach so it makes this acid bath which sanitizes and digests your food it helps you absorb b12 so the, the logical consequence of not having enough stomach acid is that you don't shut the valve properly. You don't properly digest your food. So you're now going to have partially digested um, proteins and so on lower down in the digestive tract. Uh, and you'll, you'll probably start to get the wrong balance of bacteria dysbiosis. Now, those bacteria have got to eat you know, and digest that food. So they produce gas. It's high up, so you belch, you know, which is a a, a very classic sign of, of this gastro problem. And if you're going to belch, um, that will allow some stomach acid to get into your esophagus, so you get heartburn. So you've got belching, bloating, indigestion, and heartburn. It may actually be a function of less stomach acid. Now, the local effect, you know, that the heartburn is from stomach acid, but what we often do as nutritionists, making sure someone doesn't have an ulcer, is to actually give them betaine hydrochloride, effectively stomach acid, which you can actually supplement. And very often, literally immediately, because this is 
you know, if you're eating protein and you supplemented betaine hydrochloride, um, uh, you would literally digest that meal better. And a lot of people report no more belching, no more bloating, no more heartburn. So in other words, the antacids could be doing exactly the wrong thing, even though they have the immediate effect of stopping the heartburn. Yeah, yes. And what what this makes clear is the way that processes in the body are all uh, intertwined. Um, drugs try to pick out one thing, um, but they they all have interactions between them. And uh, there's a, a lot of evidence that the uh, problems that many people have in care homes um, arise from the fact that they are put on an increasing number of drugs. As we get older, um, people are given more drugs because they have more issues and they need more drugs because the side effects of the drugs need to be controlled with other drugs. Um, and so there's a, a, a kind of knock-on effect. I think it's something like 25 million people in this country are taking more than five drugs and they um, interact with each other in ways that we're never told about um, because the focus is on certainly saying to patients, here, you've got a problem, here's the drug, and that'll help you solve it. Um, but uh, there's another story around that about the way that GPs are encouraged to prescribe drugs, which is to find a, a problem and then give a drug for it. And that's why people stack up this pile of drugs that they're taking. It, the idea was that it would keep people healthier because these drugs have been tested and therefore, if you gave drugs to protect them from developing heart disease, developing diabetes, having stomach problems, they would be better. The the out when that uh, process has been analysed, which it was fairly recently, there was really no improvement in people's health as a result of the increasing number of drugs that they were being given. Yeah, and these these um, PPI antacids. I mean, there's no question that they deplete vitamin B12, and therefore anyone on them um, should really be having their B12 monitored. But the latest research does clearly show that long-term use increases increases dementia risk, you know, quite substantially. So um, it's not great down the line. Now, let's turn to the biggest myth of all. Uh, and that is, or the biggest story of all, let me not assume it's a myth, I want to hear your view. But it's certainly enshrined in our culture. And and uh, that is that the cause of heart disease is cholesterol, and you need to lower your cholesterol with cholesterol-lowering drugs. Statins, obviously, are the first ones, but there are new ones too. Uh, in fact, having a high cholesterol in our culture has become the disease. You can be perfectly healthy, have a high cholesterol, and now you have to lower it. And as a consequence, globally, there's an estimated 200 million people, adults, I mean, that's like four times the amount of adults in the UK, um, on statins on a long-term basis. What are your insights and thoughts about this, the cholesterol story? Well, there's an interesting um, 
story which is going on at the moment, which does sort of highlight the some of the issues around statins, um, which is uh, involved a drug called inclizerin, um, which uh, is an injection. You only have to have it twice a year, and it's been causing a lot of excitement among drug companies. Um, because the idea is is that you give it to people, it's quite expensive, and they don't have to take uh, statins. They can can be combined, but they don't need to. Um, and there's been a drive to uh, make inclizerin available to the the target is three hundred thousand patients in the next, I think it's ten years. And the claim is that this will, of course, bring down heart disease dramatically um, and uh, in, expressed in terms of lives save, save something like 35,000 uh, lives from um, who other, don't, don't get the um, heart disease that they might do otherwise. The thing that's shocking and revealing about this story is that the um, NICE has told the GPs that they need to get people on this inclizerin. And very recently, um, there's a, a story in the British Medical Journal that the GPs are um, complaining about this and are resisting it on the grounds that there's no evidence that inclizerin actually does anything to reduce your chances of developing heart disease. It's a bit of a long story. I won't go into it all. But um, the essential point is that when NICE um, licensed inclizerin, it didn't actually worry about the fact that there were no trials that showed it was beneficial. And now the GPs have spotted it and they're saying, well, look, we're not going to give this because it's not ethical. Um, and we're left with a question of why NICE would have done this. And there is an answer to it, which is, um, also is an example of the way that there's concerns about the way drugs are, like, are regulated, which is that the NICE and the other N uh, NHS bodies have teamed up with the firm that makes inclizerin and agreed a commercial deal whereby the NHS is not sitting back and saying, show me your evidence and I'll... Uh, um, prescribe, uh, I'll issue a prescription ruling for it. Um, but instead, NICE is part of the process which is trying to promote the drug. And so you've got uh, at one end the uh, NICE licensing the drug without evidence, and then GPs saying, well, actually, there isn't any evidence. Um, they're not that we can see. Um, one of the places which supposedly provides evidence is a centre in Oxford called uh, Clinical Trials, uh, Clinical Cholesterol Trialists. And that has a store of data on the benefits of cholesterol lowering, um, which is often pointed to as being evidence for the benefits. Um, but the trick is that no other independent researcher is able to look at um, these studies. There are about 18 studies, big studies done on statins, which all found positive benefits. 
but they are hidden behind a sort of secrecy veil at this unit in Oxford. Um, so the idea that they provide evidence that the NICE needs is not really a, a runner, but it does raise questions about how careful they are about protecting us. So, so the if in effect the sort of medical government watchdog and advisor to tell GPs what to do is, uh, you know, kind of in bed with pharmaceuticals in this case. And absolutely. And, I mean, and Dr. Malcolm Kendrick, who um, we had on a very good podcast, "The Clock Thickens," pointed out that there is absolutely no evidence that statins um, reduce risk for heart disease in any independent trial that is a trial that is not funded by drug companies but what you're saying is even the data in the drug company filed trials um is is sort of hidden so we sort of kind of you either believe it or you don't and every i mean there is not a month almost not a week when i don't get approached by someone who's terribly worried because they've been to their doctor and and this happened to me actually it used to be so that a level of cholesterol below six was considered fine. And then um, we had a sort of situation of diagnostic creep where it dropped down to 5.2. And I, I went um, for a basic checkup. My cholesterol was a little bit raised over 5.2. Everything else is perfect. You know, low blood pressure, fit, pulse, good. And the blood fats, which is a very important measure, triglycerides were really, really low as they would be if you have a lower carb diet. And, you know, everything was like indicating cardiovascular risk does not exist for me. But just from that cholesterol level, my doctor was saying, you've got to be on statins for life. And I asked him, you know, what's the numbers needed to treat for a benefit for someone like me? And he said, you know, good heavens, I can't know that. <laughs> and I said, well, how? Therefore, are you advising me to take a drug for life when I'm completely um, symptom-free? <laughs> he said, well, it's nice, isn't it? The um, you know National Institute that advises us have got a calculator. And basically, if you put in your age, 65, mm -hmm. and your cholesterol level, you know, up pops a message which says statins for life. <laughs> uh, it's a funny old story, isn't it? Yeah, well, it, it's um, the thing is that that um, the the myth has been so firmly embedded that um, high cholesterol leads to a increased risk for heart disease, and it's sort of repeated everywhere. And the licensing of inclizarin uh, by Nice originally, part of the the basis for it was that inclizarin very dramatically lowers cholesterol. Um, it gets it way down below what you get with a statin. So the obvious logic is, well, if you've got lowered the cholesterol, it must benefit hearts and therefore is a good thing. Um, but again, referring to uh, recent studies, there was one here that was published again last year. And... Uh, um, and a, a very competent investigative journalist called Marianne de Massey, who has been working in this field for quite some time. Uh, she was uh, running a trial, which, sorry, I'm just, yes, here we go. It, she did a systematic review and meta-analysis 
of 21 statin trials involving 143,000 participants um, found no consistent relationship between lowering uh, cholesterol with statins and death, heart attack or stroke. Um, so uh, it, 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 it's really extraordinary that there, there are such strong pieces of evidence um, which contradict the mainstream story about these drugs. And somehow they, it never impacts the, the, the mainstream talk about following the evidence. But there is this very compulsive evidence for problems with, with statins and, as we said earlier, antidepressants. And yet somehow it's just brushed aside and the, um, the, the juggernaut rolls on. Uh, yeah, and also, you know, these because statins are off patent now, so they're as cheap as chips, yeah. and, um, which are uh, probably more harmful for your heart than the, than the statins. But the um, the interesting thing and the worrying thing about these new uh, anti cholesterol injections is that there are two biomarkers that uh, are the best predictors of risk for dementia and cognitive decline and Alzheimer's. One is a raised homocysteine. We'll talk about that in a minute when we get on to the anti-amyloid drugs. And the other is low cholesterol, um, below four. So, and, and the reason for that is very obvious because if you look at brain, you know, the brain is 60% fat. And if you look at the membrane of brain cells, um, it includes a lot of omega-3 DHA, but every now and again, there's a cholesterol molecule, which is sort of like a packer. It helps the helps the whole structure of the brain. So 25% of the body's total cholesterol is in the brain. So one imagines these injections. I don't know if this is true, uh, but if given twice a year and their function is to lower cholesterol, they must be lowering a lot more in the first month than they are in the last month, possibly down to the point where brain problems could occur. Any yes. On that. Um. Well, one of the, um, the alarming things about the arrangement that's been done between the NHS and uh, cholesterol uh, uh, and the cholesterol company producing the inclizerin um, is that they have agreed a price uh, for inclizerin, but this is now a commercial secret. So even though it's um, something that is, you know, going to affect the functioning of the NHS and how much it can spend and where it spends its money, we've now got to a stage where the details of that can't be released. And so we don't know whether the lowering cholesterol actually has a longer term effect. We don't know about statins and we don't know about how much we're going to be asked to pay for it. Um, it, this does look like I think the, the term is um, regulatory capture is I think the, the, that um, somehow the bodies which are supposed to be protecting us are actually um, actively concealing data in order for commercial reasons. Yes, it's all um, a little bit shocking. Um, let's turn on to our final myth story um, to examine um, Alzheimer's and dementia and the idea that it's caused by amyloid protein. Amyloid protein does occur 
in the brains of people with uh, dementia and it forms amyloid plaques. They're sort of a bit like deposits in the synapses and that's kind of where one neuron meets the other. So they are in the brain of most who have dementia. Um, but are they the cause or the consequence of the disease process? The idea is that injecting in antibodies that attack these amyloid deposits um, will solve the problem. But it's a big ask uh, that's a bit like the drugs you were just talking about, carries a big cost. Uh, the, latest, um, the latest one was pitched at $26,000 for the year. Uh, and... Uh, you know, and there's a lot of backup that has to be done with that as well. So what is your take on this whole amyloid is the cause of Alzheimer's story? Um, well, I, I think that, I mean, I'm, I'll put in my halfpenny's worth, but I think that you're much more the expert on this um, because the, uh, the, the truth that's emerging now is, and, and it's very obvious, that the brain is at the um, central control of the body and has information and exchanges information backwards and forwards between all the organs of the body. So the idea that if you have a problem with your brain, as in some of it's being damaged and the damage is getting worse, um, there's an awful lot of things that you can do but to, to change to have a different effect on the brain. Um, the, uh, one of the things is obviously B vitamins. Um, uh, Omega-3 is another one. Exercise, sleep, almost every, every lifestyle things and, and dietary things all change the way that the brain's working in a healthier and more effective way. And yet we're still left with this thing. There is this one very expensive and quite damaging the, the side effects of the Clark Buster drugs um, are, are fairly severe. I mean, they involve bleeding and, and damage in the brain. Um, and, and this is being heavily pushed and the amount of money being spent on it is enormous. I mean, it's in the billions of dollars. Um, recently, there have been a couple of new drugs that have come out to plaque busters which have been hailed as the way through and the solution. And my God, we're going to beat Alzheimer's eventually really soon. And um, <clears throat> the benefit that they do in terms of reducing damage in the brain um, is minimal. It's a, a few percent. And there's uh, another approach, which I'm sure Patrick will tell you about in a second, um, which re records far better benefits uh, which involves nutrition and general health. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing about, I mean, in a sense, it's a bit like the cholesterol story. You have to ask what's driving increased amyloid. You know, it is a marker. It's not the only one. Um, it may not be the cause. Um, if it was the cause, then lowering it would be, you know, would sort of have a much more, uh, you know, be a cure in some way. And the the benefits are very, very marginal. So it may not be causative. I don't think it is causative. But even so, a bit like cholesterol, you'd ask, well, what's you know, what's behind that? Uh, why um, do people get uh, amyloid in, in their brain? That's a very important question. But in a sense, there are two yardsticks for measuring what's going on. The process of cognitive decline leading to 
mild cognitive impairment, then dementia, Alzheimer's being two thirds of dementia, is one of increasing rates of brain shrinkage. And what was sort of a, a bit worrying about this last drug, Denanumab, and not reported in any of the newspaper stories, and it did hit the front lines in almost every single major national newspaper, uh, was that the drug group versus the placebo group had a 20% increased rate of whole brain shrinkage, increased rate of whole brain shrinkage. Now, you mentioned the B vitamin and omega-3 trials, and in uh, one of those trials, giving homocysteine-lowering B vitamins to those with sufficient omega-3 DHA produced 73% reduced rate of whole brain shrinkage. And both treatments had you know, some small benefits on cognitive function. So on the one hand, you've got a drug uh, which is going to cost tens of thousands of pounds, and more than just the cost of the drug, because the view now is that everyone having this weekly, sorry, monthly injection will have to have brain scans because a third get bleeding and swelling in the brain. So you have to monitor that. So it, it may cost £40,000 a year for someone to go down that route. Uh, and we're seeing increased brain shrinkage. And on the other hand, you could go down a sort of B vitamin omega-3 route, which might cost you £100 a year with a lot of knock-on um, beneficial side effects. And it reduces brain shrinkage quite a lot. So those are kind of the options, but they're certainly not the options that your doctor is likely to tell you about. And like there's, there's one other thing I might just jump in here. Um is that when one of the recent um, plant-busting drugs was, was the results from it were released with a big fanfare, um, it was uh, clear one of the things that's emerged very recently was after a new drug had been um, released as saying this is the best plant-buster, it's going to solve the Alzheimer problem, um, it was the case that before that, there had been 300 other uh, plant-busting drugs which had not shown to have any clinical benefit. So the, the companies had been repeating again and again and again and again trials with these drugs in order to get them to produce proper results. Any serious scientific approach to this would have stopped once the first two, three or four failures and said, we must go on and look for some other stuff. But um, that shows how determined they are to make a drug which will be very expensive and quite damaging, um, the one that everybody pays for. Well, yeah, I mean, the official figure a couple of years ago was $45 billion has been spent developing these kind of drugs. but. I think these recent trials are extremely expensive and it may be more close to a hundred billion dollars. So it's I went to the meeting of the World Dementia Council and every everyone is committed to selling this message that it's amyloid, it's amyloid, it's amyloid, and you have to have these anti-amyloid drugs. The clinical measure is quite interesting because the basically, you know, the two things you can measure is brain shrinkage. And then clinically, there's something called the Clinical Dementia Rating, or CDR. And in effect, you ask the carer or partner, 
how the person is doing. Um, a doctor uh, is involved in that assessment. And uh, if you scored zero on the clinical dementia rating, you don't have dementia. And, you know, the higher the score, the, the sort of the worse your situation. So it's, you know, that's the kind of the measure. In other words, it's a psychological measure um, that isn't even necessarily taken just from the person themselves, but the people around them. And really the only sort of highly significant relevance is if you have someone in an early stage who scores on the clinical dementia rating and then after the treatment scores zero. In other words, they, they've resolved the situation. And that's actually what happened um, in the study uh, by Professor David Smith's group in Oxford, uh, giving B vitamins. And what they found was that 30% um, more people at the end of the trial had a clinical dementia rating of zero. Uh, so you can actually say, you know, they, the B vitamin treatment in this case appears to have stopped the problem. And we don't have any data of that occurring with the anti-amyloid drugs. All they seem to have done is, is that the placebo group have done a bit less worse um, than the drug group. That That's kind of where we're at. So it's a, it's a very modest benefit. But my fear is we're going to enter a world much like cholesterol, where the disease will become amyloid in the same way that having high cholesterol is, is now a disease. And the drugs will be given at a younger and younger age, and maybe we'll start to have you know, standard blood tests like we do for cholesterol. So, oh, you've got raised amyloid, you need this treatment, and uh, which is very expensive, not very effective. And um, that's quite a scary future. And just like the new um, anti-cholesterol drugs, very, very expensive. Um, so kind of untenable, but in the short term, you know, potentially very profitable for big pharma. Yeah, I mean, um, that that does seem to be the direction. It's a, the logical situation with when you've got a product you need to sell it to as many people as possible for as high a price as possible. And I think the fact that we're getting a, a link up between the NHS and drug companies is going to put an end to um, what we used to call evidence-based medicine. Um, I think the only thing useful that one can say to people who aren't involved in tracking this and, and reading about it um, is just be a bit aware. Be it, it, it there's a quite a drive um, to make any challenge to the conventional medical advice, um, not just a scientific thing of here's some new data, uh, it should be looked at further, but it's taken as a form of heresy. Um, you, th this is the truth, which is what we're telling you about drugs. And if you disbelieve it, you're not just challenging it in an intelligent, thoughtful way. Um, you're a heretic. And in the cases of people who do it a lot because they're passionate about trying to get the um, different view out, um, they can end up having their sites blocked and um, information taken down. And um, in fact, there was a court case um, going on uh, about a month ago in which 
three people who had been challenging uh, the statin story were pilloried in the Daily Mail as um, big headline statin deniers. And they took umbrage at that and actually sued the Daily Mail for libel. Um, so we're waiting with a degree of interest to see um, what the outcome will be. But um, it, it's not just scientific exchange of information. It's a commercially driven view of what, what works and challenging it is dangerous. So in your 20 years in medical journalism, um, do you see a change in the basis of doing medicine evidence, real evidence-based medicine, do you see a change in the relationship between the pharmaceutical companies, the National Health Service, the government advisor, NICE, and doctors? Um, are we, are we, you know, what's happened in the last 20 years as a sort of cultural shift? Well, I think one of the, the big things is that um, that there's a what might be called a, a, a group or a movement of what I've called uh, citizen scientists. And they're people who they may be um, in various universities or uh, research centres, or they may be people who've just developed an interest in it and are perfectly capable of reading the data and following the um, uh, what the trials are showing and are writing about, blogging about um, the fact that there are problems with the, the story. And it, it's almost as if you've got, um, it's kind of like uh, religion, um, where you, at one point you had the Catholic Church was the big one, and they control pretty well everything. And um, then these um, uh, Protestants, these uh, reformers came up and said, look, there are a lot of problems with your religion and there's a lot of um, uh, illogicalities and, and things which just don't make sense. And you got the whole Protestant movement. And I think we've got a lot of, of um, Protestant uh, researchers who are struggling to make an impact on the, um, the big uh, medical mainstream. Uh, because their um, their ideas and challenges are, are just being ignored. How you get around that and get them to make uh, more uh, be taken more notice of, I don't really know. The only the only thing that that would make sense is it has to become some sort of a a general movement where other people move in and say, "Come on, we need to know more about this. We need to have more um, not having." fudge trials, we need to have things which are scientifically authentic. The other thing that um, strikes me, uh, and it's sort of impossible to ignore if you are looking at the kind of evidence that I do, is that all these problems that we've spoken about, um, antidepressants and uh, you know depression, heart disease, Alzheimer's and so on, the from a nutritional perspective, there are sort of four main drivers of problems. One is blood sugar problems, um, that whole area of carbohydrates. The other is essential fats, omega-3. Um, the third are B vitamins and homocysteine. And the fourth is um, antioxidants, polyphenols, vitamin C, and so on. And you know, if you take the situation of heart disease, 
And you do find in arteries these blockages, atheromas, um, high in cholesterol. But it turns out that what happens is that cholesterol can get damaged by oxidation. So that's the sort of lack of antioxidants. Um, it can get damaged cholesterol particles in the blood by glycation. That's the sugar factor. Uh, and then the immune system sort of looks at this damaged cholesterol and uh, the vacuum cleaners of the immune system gobble it up, which produces a foam cell, which then lodges in the arteries. So you do find high cholesterol, but it's a function of these other changes. Similarly, in Alzheimer's, um, those blood sugar issues, antioxidants, polyphenols, homocysteine-lowering B vitamins, omega-3s, these are all you know, major drivers and major risk factors. And probably it's the consequence of them that leads to inflammation in the brain. It looks like amyloid is just, you know, part of that process. With depression, again, there's a lot of evidence of um, inflammation in the brain. Omega-3s, terribly important. We know that having raised homocysteine level increases risk um, for depression. And uh, we know that diabetes is very closely linked with depression. Very often depression occurs two years before a diagnosis of diabetes. So from my perspective, it's the same drivers that hit, uh, you know, a different part of your body, whether it's your brain or your arteries or whatever it happens to be. So the idea that you can isolate one consequence, such as cholesterol or amyloid or serotonin, target it and, and get a cure seems, you know, seems quite ridiculous. Can I just put in... Uh, one other thing, which which does look like a, a one-off thing, having, having said that you need to have multiple inputs, which is obviously the case for general health. But um, it is striking that, and this may be seen as good news for some older people, um, is that Viagra, um, is, which increases nitric oxide in the, in the body, um, is um, nitric oxide is a vital component of protection of the arteries as a lining to the arteries, the um, endothelium, uh, which is essential for blood pressure and um, for keeping the, the, the system healthy. Um, and without good levels of nitric oxide, um, that will lead to, it's one of the the causes of heart disease, although it's not one that's widely recognized. Um, and there are two ways of getting it. One is via um, uh, erection, uh, increasing drugs, Viagra and um, uh, several other ones, Cialis. Um, and the other thing is sunbathing because there are stores of nitric oxide they've discovered recently under the skin, which gets released um, by sunlight um, along with vitamin D. Uh, so there's an area that if you, you want to do a kind of famous just one thing, um, that's something that might be tried. I can't possibly advocate it in a serious way, but it is an interesting link. And beetroot also raises nitric oxide. Uh, right. <laughs> So are you recommending Viagra, sunbathing, and beetroot as, as a cure for heart disease? I think it would be an improvement on some of the drugs. 
Well, thank you very much for sharing your insights and time on the myth stories that sell drugs. And uh, there's a lot of food for thought in there. And uh, if anyone has any questions that they'd like to ask, please post them on our Facebook group. Thank you, Jerome. Thanks for inviting me. It's been fun.